0: The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and in today's episode, we delve into the final part of the ACDC story. In part one, we discovered the origin story of ACDC, then in part two, we delved into the Bon Scott era of the band, which ended with Bon's tragic death, and then in part three... We saw the band return with Brian Johnson as their new lead singer as they broke records with the Back in Black album before ACDC limped into the 90s with some hidden miss albums followed by Malcolm Young's stint on the sidelines due to his issues with alcohol, only for him to make his return just before the recording of the band's 12th studio album. So if you haven't yet listened to part 1, 2 or 3, I highly recommend checking them out first. So... Without further ado, let's get straight into it. This is ACDC, Part 4, The 90s to Now. This is Lyrics of Their Life. At the beginning of 1990, ACDC returned to the studio to record their 12th studio album, titled... The Razor's Edge, travelling to both Dublin in Ireland and Vancouver in Canada to carry out the recording sessions. Despite George Young being involved in production early on, Harry Vander and George Young were replaced by sound engineer Mike Fraser and producer Bruce Fairburn, who had previously worked for Aerosmith, Brian Adams and Bon Jovi. Some critics found it to be an odd selection for producer but Bruce's commerciality and experience worked well with the direction they were headed in. In the early writing stages of the album, Brian Johnson was absent as he was going through the divorce process with his now ex-wife Carol, who he shared two daughters with, and were now 17 and 22. This left Angus and Malcolm to write all the songs for the album, which they would continue to do from here on out. On the past few albums, Brian Johnson had struggled writing quality songs and was actually relieved to be let go of these duties so he could solely focus on his vocals and live performances. He often felt the pressure to write a full album's worth of material and was quoted as saying, I ran out of words. As Brian was going through a difficult divorce at the time, losing control over songwriting was the least of his concerns. Eventually over the years, Brian would move on and marry for a second time, meeting an American woman named Brenda, who would share Brian's passion for motorsports and cars, as well as being a band manager herself for Bad Sarah and Seven Years Past. The pair would remain very private and made the odd appearance in the media, but did well to keep their relationship separate from the limelight. On the lead up to the Razor's Edge album release, ACDC would prove they were back to their best when they released one of their most classic hits of all time, titled, Thunderstruck. Thunderstruck was released officially on the 10th of September, 1990, and instantly took off, with its high-energy anthem-like lyrics, chanting of the word thunder, Brian Johnson's screaming vocals, and incredible guitar riffs and solos by Angus Young. And it was simply one song that would never be forgotten. With the help of an exceptional music video directed by David Mallet. Displaying the band in front of a huge crowd at London's Brixton Academy. As Angus Duck walks across the stage over plexiglass as the camera follows him from underneath. While Chris Slade's drumsticks were fitted with tiny cameras to give us a unique perspective. As Thunderstruck would rise to number 1 in Finland, 3 in the Netherlands, Spain and New Zealand. Four in Australia and Belgium, the top five in Ireland, and on the mainstream rock charts in the US, and number 13 in the UK. The music video for Thunderstruck currently sits at over 1 billion views on YouTube. While the single itself has sold well over 3 million copies worldwide, and is 5 times platinum in Australia. The guitar riff for Thunderstruck itself is arguably one of the most well-known and iconic riffs in all of music history to this day. And believe it or not, Angus came up with it by accident, as he told Guitar World's Alan DePerna, quote, I was just fiddling with my left hand when I came up with that riff. I played it more by accident than anything. I thought, not bad, and put it on a tape. That's how me and Malcolm generally work. We put our ideas down on tape and play them for one another. Angus elaborated further in 2003 when he said, It started off from a little trick I had on guitar. I played it to Mal and he said, Oh, I've got a good rhythm idea that will sit well in the back. We built the song up from that. We fiddled about with it for a few months before everything fell into place. Lyrically, it was really just a case of finding a good title. We came up with this thunder thing, and it just seemed to have a good ring to it. ACDC equals power. That's the basic idea. After putting some catchy thunder and power-related lyrics to the song, and adding drums, bass, and of course Brian's hell of a voice, a classic was born. Years down the track, Angus revealed as he got older, it was quite a difficult task to perform the song live, as it was quite tiring. As he told Vulture Magazine... Quote, "I have to sit down for an hour and make sure I've got my fingers warmed up to take on that track. It's got an unrelenting intricacy. I have to be confident whenever I play it." After Thunderstruck's release was the launch of AC/DC's 12th studio album, The Razor's Edge, which was released on the 21st of September, 1990. The double-sided 12-track album was said to be named after an old British farmer's saying, As Angus was quoted as saying, the razor's edge comes from an old saying farmers used to use in Britain, where you'd have a fine sunny day, you know, a very good day with a hot sun, and then all of a sudden, right in the distance, you could see these black clouds coming over the horizon. I thought it was a great title. The world was at peace again, and everyone thought, ah, the Berlin Walls come down, and it's all going to be fun and games, a party every night. And you can see now that it's not that way. It's just our way of saying the world's not perfect and never will be. Razor's Edge would prove to be a huge return to form for ACDC and peaked at number one in Canada, two in the US, Switzerland, New Zealand and Norway, three in Australia and four in Germany and the UK. The album managed to stay on the US Billboard 200 chart for 77 consecutive weeks. It was received well by critics labelling it their best release in almost a decade and sold around 10 to 12 million copies around the world which makes it the band's fourth highest selling album. Malcolm's very first live show back with ACDC was at the Worcester Centrum in Massachusetts in the USA on the 2nd of November 1990 with Brian Johnson on vocals, Angus on lead guitar and... Cliff Williams on bass and new drummer Chris Slade. ACDC would tour for four months straight in the US as their next single titled Money Talks was released on the 8th of December 1990. Yet another great track from the Razor's Edge album, Money Talks would peak at number 3 on the US rock chart, 9 in New Zealand, 12 in Canada and the top 30 in both Australia and the US on their mainstream chart. The line in the song, money talks, bullshit walks, is a perfect line that sums up the theme of the track, where Angus and Malcolm call out the rich and famous businessmen and women that take everybody for a ride and take advantage of them. Despite ACDC around this time being quite well off themselves, they always maintained that they were able to remain respectful and grounded and despise those that flaunt their wealth in others' faces as money creates classes and causes a great divide between people. In order to promote the single and the album, ACDC had $1 bills printed with Angus featuring on them rather than George Washington, and during the live shows when Money Talks was played, dollar bills labeled as Angus bucks would come raining down from the ceiling onto the crowd and could be kept as mementos. Despite the track being quite popular at the time, and believe it or not being ACDC's highest charting track of all time on the US mainstream Billboard Hot 100, reaching number 23. Sadly, after the Razor's Edge tour, it wouldn't be played live again, and was hardly heard on radio, becoming one of their most underrated and forgotten hits. While touring the US, at a show in Salt Lake City, Utah, at the Salt Palace Accord Arena, On the 18th of January 1991, tragedy struck when 19-year-old Elizabeth Gorchy and 14-year-olds Curtis Child and Jimmy Boyd were trampled, crushed and sadly killed barely halfway into the first song of Thunderstruck after a large amount of excitable fans rushed to the front of the stage. Twelve to 13,000 fans were in attendance that evening with only standing general admission and no assigned or reserved seating being allocated at the gig. As the opportunity to get to the front row looked too good to refuse and only standing positions were up for grabs, a rush for the front caused many to be squished up against each other and these three people mentioned sadly lost their lives. ACDC were criticised for not paying attention to the crowd as a security guard named Scott Carter told MTV, quote, I was telling the security guard for ACDC to shut off the music, to turn off the lights. People are hurting. People are screaming. All I can remember is feeling helpless because I was being ignored. Nothing was being done. ACDC were believed to be oblivious to what was going on for a period of time, as they played on for around 15-20 to minutes, before stopping the show. The three individuals who were crushed, sustained a number of different injuries, with one dying at the scene, and two being rushed to hospital, and dying days after the concert. Brian Johnson told VH1's behind the music program, that he and his band had no idea what was going on, or how big it actually was, as he was quoted as saying, Terrible night. I'll never forget it for as long as I live. I was shattered. Then when the band finally realised, they couldn't believe it. As Brian said, Angus was beside himself. I could see he was welling up. Mao was trying to hold it together as best he could. After taking a break from the traumatic scenario, the crowd began to grow restless, so the authorities advised ACDC that it would be wise to finish the show in order to prevent a potential riot. ACDC reluctantly decided to go on with the show, but after knowing what had just occurred, it was extremely difficult, as Brian remembered performing in shock, and that between the band members there were plenty of tears while they were playing their instruments. Making matters worse were the pesky media blowing the story up out of proportion, with Brian quoted as saying, I think what hurt most was the next day in the newspapers, they were saying the band played on while kids died around them, and they had a photograph of me with a smile on my face. It was just journalistic opportunity that went beyond the bounds of decency. I was so angry and hurt. Despite their remorse for what had occurred, and Malcolm being so traumatised that he was unable to speak of the event in public ever again, The parents of the three victims and others injured or traumatized from the concert took ACDC and Salt Lake City County to court attempting to sue the band for negligence and attempting to hold them responsible for their deaths with matters eventually being settled outside of court. Due to this tragedy along with others prior to this full standing general admission concerts were banned other than at festivals with specific general admission and seating options now legally required to prevent overcrowding and crushing at these concerts. Brian recalled that this period was rough on the band as they tried to come to terms with the horrible tragedy, but they knew the only way forward was to keep playing to their millions of fans around the world and soldier on. As ACDC wrapped up their US Leg of the Razor's Edge tour in February 1991, and headed to Europe for further shows in March, ACDC released their final single from the Razor's Edge album, titled, Are You Ready For A Good Time?, which was officially released on the 28th of March, 1991. The high-energy track peaked at number one in New Zealand, 18 in Australia, and 34 in the UK. The Razor's Edge tour continued on as one of the biggest tours yet commercially. After ticking Europe off their list, they headed to the UK for some shows at Wembley, followed by a second leg in the US, Canada and Europe, and a tour of their home country Australia and neighbouring country New Zealand. Wrapping up the tour on the 16th of November at Mount Smart Stadium in Auckland, New Zealand, after performing close to 170 shows around the world over just a year, with sometimes two shows in the one day proving once again that they were the hardest working band in the world. It was on this tour on the 28th of September 1991 that ACDC would perform in front of the biggest crowd they had ever seen and one of the biggest crowds to ever be recorded. As the Soviet Union was being relinquished, ACDC had been invited by the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, to headline a free concert for the Youth of Russia, who would help to stop a communist coup. The Monsters of Rock Festival was originally going to be held at the Red Square in Moscow, but due to the amount of fans that were estimated to attend, it was relocated to the outskirts of Moscow at an air force base, which saw anywhere from 1 to 1.9 million people gather around an open air stage to hear the hard rocking music of ACDC, Metallica, the Black Crows and Pantera. ACDC found it to be an incredible experience with a sea of people as far as the eye could see. They left Moscow feeling great and saw it as a career highlight. That same year, ACDC also featured at the Donington Castle version of the Monsters of Rock Festival in England alongside the same bands from Moscow as well as Motley Crue which was later turned into a successful live DVD called Live at Donington in front of over 70,000 fans. From their incredible and unforgettable live tour, ACDC produced an album with Bruce Fairburn called Live, which would be dubbed as one of their greatest live albums of the 1990s, rising to number 1 in Australia, 5 in the UK, 9 in New Zealand and 15 in the US which over time has been estimated to have sold 8 million copies worldwide and going eight times platinum in Australia. Over the next few years, ACDC went on a slight hiatus with limited releases and no live shows taking place. In May 1993, ACDC were part of the soundtrack for the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Last Action Hero with a song titled Big Gun, which was produced by Rick Rubin. The track was especially popular in the US, where it rose to number one on the US mainstream rock chart, and the top five in Switzerland, New Zealand, and Canada. The merry go round of ACDC drummers would also continue into mid 1993, when ACDC began working on demos for their 13th studio album in London. Chris Slade, had decided to leave the band after being told by Malcolm Young that they were looking into reuniting with former long-term drummer Phil Rudd as they were looking to bring Phil in for their next album and tour. But they offered to keep Slade around as basically their backup plan if things didn't turn out. Slade was deeply offended by this notion and immediately quit and was quoted as saying, that's me out then, I'm gone. The members of ACDC first came up with the idea of reuniting with Rudd when on their last leg of the Razor's Edge tour in New Zealand in 1991, Rudd was living there at the time and attended a show of theirs in Auckland only to meet up with them backstage and receive an invite for a jam session and a catch up while they were in town which of course obviously went well. Rudd had seemingly overcome his drug addiction and patched things up with Malcolm as the pair had previously shared a rocky relationship being one of the main reasons for his departure in 1983. It's believed during ACDC's stay in New Zealand that Rudd expressed his willingness to return to the band if they would have him along at some point. As time went on, they decided that Rudd would best suit them moving forward, with Rudd agreeing to rejoin ACDC officially in August of 1994, where they began working on their 13th studio album together. Sadly for Chris Slade, he felt disgusted and disappointed over his bandmate's decision to force him out that way, which also led to him being turned off from playing the drums for around three years, as it had that much of an effect on him. ACDC, however, praised Slade for his time with the band, saying he was a great performer and very good technically on the drums, but they felt they had been missing something ever since Rudd left in 83. In late 1994, ACDC headed into Record Plant Studio in New York with Rick Rubin as their producer, after he had helped put together the track Big Gun for the film Last Action Hero. But after realising that the studio wasn't suited to the drum sound they were looking for, they relocated to Ocean Way Studios in LA, taking them a total of 5 months to put the album together. This would be the only album Rick Rubin would ever produce for ACDC after there was believed to be some creative clashes and the fact that Rubin would often leave sessions early to work with other bands such as the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The ACDC boys also claimed that he would make them record their parts sometimes around 50 times before being happy with it, simply overproducing a band that hated that style of recording and preferred a more live approach. Malcolm later played off tensions between them, but was quoted as saying, working with him was a mistake. ACDC now consisted of the reunited 1980-1983 lineup of Brian Johnson, the oldest member, age 47, Cliff Williams, age 45, Malcolm Young, age 41, Phil Rudd, age 40, and still the youngest member of the band, Angus Young, age 39. Despite aging, they kept on selling out live shows and pumping out typical hard-rocking ACDC tunes. And on the 17th of September, 1995, ACDC released their first single from their upcoming album, called Hard As A Rock. The track Hard As A Rock was actually written back in the Who Made Who sessions in 1985 and 86, and the theme of the song actually represents the physical attraction ...to a woman that makes the man experience a large erection... ...which of course is evident in the line... ...as hard as a rock... ...as ACDC revert back to some of their earlier lyrical symbolisms... ...to get their point across... ...and sneak it through onto commercial radio... ...it worked a treat however... ...with hard as a rock... ...rising to number one in Finland... ...and the US mainstream rock chart... ...as well as the top 10... ...in Norway... ...and the Netherlands... ...and the top 20... ...in New Zealand... ...Australia and sweden following on from this acdc released their 13th studio album titled ballbreaker on the 26th of september 1995 ballbreaker was a solid album that was met well by critics and rose to number one in australia finland and sweden the top five in eight countries including the us new zealand and canada as well as number six in the uk who at this point had seemingly gone cold on ACDC with their more Americana type of music. The album sold well, with anywhere between 3-5 million copies being reportedly sold around the world. Despite doing quite well, the next two singles, called Cover You in Oil and Hail Caesar, both failed to make an impact on the charts after being released before April 1996. For almost all of 1996, from January to November, ACDC toured the Ball album to the US, Canada, Europe, Australia, the UK and New Zealand, before taking a well-earned break for the next two and a half years, focusing on their family lives as a number of live albums and a compilation called Bonfire were released to the public. Sadly, however, on the 4th of August 1997, Angus and Malcolm farewelled their older brother, Alexander Young, who had lost his battle with lung cancer. In 1997, Angus and Malcolm continued to work on their music and began writing the songs for their next album that would eventually become known as Stiff Upper Lip. They worked on creating these tracks in both London and the Netherlands, with Malcolm jumping on guitar to come up with the chords and Angus jumping on the drums and laying down the beat for the tracks. By February 1998, Angus and Malcolm had already wrote and arranged an album's worth of material as they looked to bring in Bruce Fairburn once again, who helped them to produce their successful Razor's Edge album and ACDC Live album and had since gone on to produce more successful albums for Aerosmith, Poison, In Excess, Van Halen, and The Cranberries. But sadly, only a couple months later, in May 1998, Bruce had passed away after being found dead in Vancouver, Canada, during the mixing sessions for the band Yes. This left ACDC searching for another producer, so they decided to recall their brother, George Young, to produce Stiff Upper Lip for them. The most recent album George had produced for the band was Blow Up Your Video in 1988. ACDC thoroughly enjoyed putting this album together compared to Ballbreaker, as Cliff Williams told Behind the Music, quote, It's a killer album. It was a very easy to record album, as Malcolm and Angus had everything ready to go. So we basically just had to come along and perform as best we could. ACDC reunited with the same lineup from Ballbreaker during September through to November of 1999, recording the album in the Brian Adams own studio, The Warehouse, in Vancouver, Canada. Brian Johnson reflected on the recording sessions with George by saying, quote, In the past, he's always worked with Harry Vander. Not detracting from Harry, but it was kinda streamlined this time. You had no one to answer to, or discuss things with, except Malcolm or Angus. We were working pretty hard this time actually, from about 11 in the morning, until 1 the next morning sometimes. Saturdays as well. It was good though, George always had a game plan. I hate it when you're hanging around waiting for the next decision. George always had it all worked out. On the 21st of January in the year 2000, ACDC released the track Stiff Upper Lip as their first single from the album of the same name. The track managed to peak at number one on the US rock chart, but struggled elsewhere to take off despite receiving airtime in Australia and remaining to this day as a fan favourite. The song saw a return of the blues mixed with the classic ACDC rock and roll sound and was arguably the best track from the album. When coming up with the name for the album and title of the song, Angus recalled while sitting in traffic that he started thinking of all the great musicians who have rose to great heights in the industry and the one trait they all shared and that was having great prominent lips or as the song suggests, a stiff upper lip. Which adds to their swagger and persona adding a level of attitude and confidence. For example, the likes of Freddie Mercury, Elvis Presley... Mick Jagger and Aussie rock legend Chrissy Amphlett of the Divinals, just to name a few. Angus himself felt he had contributed to this trend, often pouting and using his lips to express his guitar playing, as he was quoted as saying, With us, there's always been a bit of humour too. Even when we started, I used to always say, I've got bigger lips than Jagger, and I've got bigger lips than Presley when I stick them out. Actually, if you look on the Highway to Hell album, there's my lip stuck up there like this, as Angus curls his lip before continuing, I remember when I was a kid, I saw an early black and white movie of Bridget Bardot, and she had those pouting lips, and you go, well yeah, I like what she's serving. The music video somewhat pays homage to this origin story of the song, as the band is seen in New York City, stuck in a traffic jam, before they get out of their cars and start playing to the people of the city. On the 28th of February 2000, ACDC released their 14th studio album titled Stiff Upper Lip, which rose to number one in four European countries, including Finland, where they had been having a lot of recent success. It also reached the top 5 in 4 other countries including Australia and Canada, 7 in the US and 12 in both New Zealand and the UK. The album was received a lot better than Ballbreaker but was often criticised for being too similar to their old music style with many critics claiming it lacked new ideas. Personally however, I thought the album was massively underappreciated and it only sold around 3-4 million copies around the world. The album saw a return to their old style of rock and roll, mixed in with the blues, almost similar to the type of music they were putting out when Bon Scott was still fronting the band. ACDC actually really enjoyed creating this album, with Malcolm and Angus becoming frustrated over the critics labelling them as one-trick ponies, outdated, and that once again their music has become stale. Malcolm told Behind the Music, quote, We just wanted to be a good rock and roll band, While Angus maintained his earlier statements and said they never tried to be something they didn't want to be and sell out for a more pop or mainstream approach. However, the perception around ACDC did start to turn a corner as they headed further into the 2000s as they began earning the respect and following of younger generations and would soon be seen as cool again. The album cover artwork for Stiff Upper Lip included a large bronze statue of Angus that would also be displayed behind the band at their live concerts for the tour. This huge stiff upper lip tour would run from August 2000 to July 2001 as they travelled across North America, Canada, Europe, the UK, Australia and Japan. One particular show at America West Arena in Phoenix, Arizona on the 13th of September 2000 was definitely memorable, with Angus taking on a member of the crowd. As Slash's snake pit opened the show in front of 11,000 spectators, ACDC got straight into it, with Brian Johnson putting to bed any rumours about his voice struggling while on the tour, belting out track after track as cannons blasted and lasers and fireworks were set off. According to a fan named Hal Engstrom and the moment captured on video, When it came time for Bad Boy Boogie, tension arose when ACDC had just entered into the second chorus. When a dim-witted fan threw a cup of beer on stage that was aimed at Angus, instead sending it over his head and crashing onto the stage, causing it to spray all over their equipment. Angus, who had just started playing his solo, pointed to the fan he suspected had thrown the cup and shook his finger to give him a fair warning not to do it again. But without hesitation, another cup of beer came flying Angus's way and collected him directly on the chest, spilling all over him and his beloved Red SG guitar. A frustrated Angus stopped playing and handed his guitar to the road crew before calling the agitator to the front of the stage to front up to him. The agitator then approached the front of the mosh pit as Angus leaned out as far as he could and gave him a cheeky but firm pull on the nose. Before security came over to kick the agitator out of the venue, getting what he deserved. The moment can still be found on YouTube today. During their tour, further singles from the album were released, including the track Safe in New York City and Satellite Blues, but they failed to make much of an impact on the charts. Safe in New York City spoke about the nightlife of New York and the beautiful women in the city but also sarcastically pokes fun at New York, and in particular Manhattan, being referred to as a safe city after Rudy Giuliani claimed to have fixed the city's crime rate up. While Angus makes the point that, quote, That song is a little tongue-in-cheek. Last time I was in New York, that's all people were talking about. How safe it was. How it was going to be such a great place to live. For me, New York has always been a city of unpredictability you can never guess what's going to happen next. Angus also emphasises that living or staying there in the hustle and bustle of the city, along with their small apartments, are like living in a cage, which is reflected in the line, I feel safe in a cage in New York City, something Angus wasn't quite used to being from Australia. Brian Johnson explained that in order to ensure that people didn't believe them and take the song too seriously when they were singing I Feel Safe in New York City and that they in fact felt unsafe, Brian was quoted as saying, The lads had a bit of fun with that song because in the end they stuck in that little line I'd feel safe in a cage in New York City just in case people start fucking believing it. What spun some people out however was a year and a half later On September 11, 2001, the Twin Towers, of course, were attacked in New York in the 9-11 attacks, sparking controversy around ACDC's song, Safe in New York City, as well as the song's cover artwork for their single, featuring the Twin Towers, still intact in the background, with the neck of Angus's guitar laying directly across the area, where the first plane was believed to have hit, almost replicating a jet going through the building, sparking all sorts of crazy rumours about the band. After the attacks, the song safe in New York City was actually added to a list of songs banned from being played on US commercial radio, known as the 2001 Clear Channel Memorandum, labelling a list of 165 songs that aren't appropriate due to their lyrical content that in some way could be referred to 9-11 and therefore could be distressing to listeners. This list would stand for quite some time after the attack with certain songs never returning to the airwaves in the states especially in New York City ever again. The band that was hit the hardest by these regulations was Rage Against the Machine who had all of their 49 songs available at the time banned while ACDC also had Highway to Hell, Dirty Deeds, Shoot to Thrill, Shot Down in Flames and TNT all banned for a period of time. After ACDC's final show of the Stiff Upper Lip Tour on the 8th of July 2001 in Köln, Germany, they would spend much of the 2000s being out of the spotlight and wouldn't release any new material for at least 6 or 7 years other than remastered versions of their albums after signing a new deal with Sony Music in 2002. Cliff Williams set off on a few side projects, and in 2003, they joined a short eight-concert tour called The Stones and Club Tour, and The Rolling Stones Licks Tour, supporting The Rolling Stones and playing on the same bill as a range of other artists, including The Pretenders and Rush, as they travelled to multiple gigs across Germany, followed by singular shows in London, Toronto and New York. But the biggest highlight of 2003 would be ACDC's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as Steven Tyler of Aerosmith would be the one to induct ACDC after providing a speech that saw him pay tribute to all errors of the band, including the contribution of Bon Scott, Angus's schoolboy gimmick, and how ACDC always maintained that classic rock sound without straying to pop or mainstream, while Brian Johnson also
1: provided a short speech. Thank you so much. Um, in the beginning, back in 1955, men didn't know about the rock and roll show and all that jive. The white man had the schmaltz, the black man had the blues, but no one knew what they was going to do, but Tchaikovsky had the news. He said, let there be rock. Bon Scott wrote that, and, uh, it's, uh... It's a real privilege to accept these awards tonight. We'll have on stage with us Paul and Daniel, who are Bond's nephews, who are going to accept the award tonight. And just a few words. We'd just like to thank uh, Albert Music for sticking with the boys, um, Atlantic Records, Electra, and our new record company, Epic, want to thank them but merely this award is for the fans all around the world that have stuck by us through thick and thin. Thanks guys. It's an honour to uh, accept this award
0: on behalf of Michael Bonscott. Thank you. Yeah. In 2004 ACDC were honoured to have a lane in Melbourne named after them called ACDC Lane. That same year Bon Scott was named number one in the top 100 greatest frontman list by Classic Rock magazine in the UK placing him in front of the likes of Robert Plant, Mick Jagger and Freddie Mercury for a band that had once been doing extremely tough financially they were now listed as one of Australia's most well-off artists and were finally living the life they had always dreamed of without even performing gigs or releasing new music their popularity during 2005 and onwards only increased, and royalties were starting to pay off as they began connecting with the younger generations through having their songs appear on the video game Rock Band and featuring their tracks in more TV shows and movies. Cliff Williams and Brian Johnson even raised funds performing some gigs for the John Fistle Foundation and for Florida's Hurricane Relief. That same year in 2005, Bon Scott was remembered for his contribution to music and Western Australian culture by being inducted into the Western Australian Music Industry Awards Hall of Fame. Then in 2006, Phil Rudd sadly split with his wife Lisa O'Brien after being married for 23 years and having five kids together. During 2006, Bon Scott was honoured in Scotland this time around in the town of Kirimurre where a stone slab commemorating Bond was placed and his good friend Vince Lovegrove of the Valentines was there to unveil it and was quoted as saying, The thing I loved most about Bond Scott was his almost unique self-honesty. What you saw was what you got. He was a real person and as honest as the day is long. To my mind, he was the street poet of my generations and of the generations that followed. Following this... BonFest, a festival dedicated to Bon Scott, was initiated and 10 years later in the same town of Kirimur, a bronze statue of Bon was erected. Another bronze statue of Bon standing on top of a Marshall amplifier was placed in Fremantle, Western Australia, in his honour, in 2008, attracting tourists to the site regularly.
1: We interrupt our program to bring you this important message...
0: Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going, so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do, it just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes, as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast, or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. While well, finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract, or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast, and you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation, or you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work, so your support would be greatly appreciated, as it means I can continue creating more content, such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews and more, as it takes a lot of time, resources and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at LyricsOfTheirLife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. After a lengthy hiatus from releasing new music... ACDC returned to the Warehouse Studio in Vancouver, Canada on the 3rd of March 2008 to record their 15th studio album called Black Ice. The Black Ice album took them just over a month to put together, wrapping up the project on the 25th of April 2008 and saw the band collaborate for the first time ...with producer Brendan O'Brien, who had previously worked with Bob Dylan, Pearl Jam, Bruce Springsteen, The Offspring and Rage Against The Machine. Originally, Mutt Lang wanted to produce the album after previously producing the hit albums Highway To Hell, Back In Black and For Those About To Rock... ...but due to a busy schedule, he wasn't able to fit them in. Sound engineer Mike Fraser also returned once again to work on the album and had been a part of every album since The Razor's Edge. Most of the material for the album had actually been written around 2003, after Angus and Malcolm had wrote them separately before meeting up to collaborate in London. A number of factors caused the album's production to be delayed, including Cliff Williams injuring his hand and needing to allow it to heal for 18 months, while there was also a number of record label changes from Atlantic to Sony and to Sony's subsidiary label's Epic Records and then finally to Columbia Records. During Cliff Williams's recovery, the Young Brothers made the finishing touches to riffs and lyrics, with Johnson ever so slightly helping out with melodies and slight lyrical changes. Most of the songs were recorded live in the studio with only minor overdubs and effects utilised. In order to remain fresh and avoid burning out, with most members well into their early and late 50s, recording sessions were much shorter. Originally, the album was set to be titled Runaway Train, after Malcolm came up with the idea to use an image of a derailed train as the album artwork. But after Angus told him it had been used before by the band Mr. Big for the album Lean Into It, as well as other artists using similar imagery, they decided to go with something more original. That's when Angus thought of the name Black Ice, as he claimed it just rolled off of his tongue, and Black Ice represents playing gigs in the cold winter of Scotland and the radio warnings that would come over the airwaves of Black Ice on the road which is a slippery thin layer of clear glazed ice, which isn't really black, but could potentially be dangerous to those driving at high speeds over the ice, as it causes vehicles to lose traction. What sparked him to use this title was a similar warning he had heard over the radio while they were recording in Vancouver. In order for the album to work, O'Brien wanted ACDC to revert back to their classic style, but with more melody and focus on the song as a whole, not just the chorus, which has always been the band's strong point. With Brendan O'Brien quoted as saying, The ACDC music that I remember most is Highway to Hell and Back in Black, which I view as pop songs done in a very heavy, ferocious way. Angus and Malcolm were writing songs that had a lot of hooks, and my only job was to make a record that made people say, I've missed ACDC and I'm glad they're back. In order to promote the album, the first single, titled Rock and Roll Train, was released on the 28th of August, 2008. The track, also known as Runaway Train, managed to peak at number one on the US rock chart and received loads of airtime on Australian radio. The release of the Black Ice album followed on the 20th of October, 2008, featuring 15 high-quality tracks, with the highlights from the album being the songs Big Jack, War Machine, Money Made, and Anything Goes, all of which were released as singles from the album. The song War Machine would go on to win the band's one and only Grammy Award for the best hard rock performance by a duo or a group, while the track Stormy Mayday sees Angus using a slide guitar for the first time. Black Ice became ACDC's most successful album since Razor's Edge and went to number one in a huge 22 countries, including Australia, New Zealand, across Europe, the UK and the US and Canada, as well as reaching the top three in a further five countries. Eventually, Black Ice would sell 8 million copies worldwide and it was praised by critics and set the stage for a sellout world tour. While Black Ice received a number of smaller awards for Best Rock Album across the globe and was nominated for Brit Awards and took home two Ari Awards for Best Rock Album and Highest Selling Album, signalling a renewed interest in the Aussie rockers. The Black Ice World Tour began in Pennsylvania in the US on the 26th of October 2008 and ran through to the 28th of June 2010 in Bilbao, Spain. The tour featured a 3,500 kilogram locomotive train prop on stage. It lasted a total of 20 months, grossed $441 million, making it currently the 7th highest grossing tour of all time. They performed in front of 5 million people and it included 169 shows across the US, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, South America and Japan becoming their biggest tour they had ever completed in the shortest amount of time. Despite being in their 50s, they could still hold their own and prove they were the hardest working band in the world. Black Ice was said to be a brilliant tour that was just one that you couldn't miss, with plenty of pyro and loud rock and roll music. Johnson at one stage during September 2009 had to reschedule six shows, due to stomach ulcers and a condition that affected the esophagus, known as Barrett's Syndrome, which was believed to be at risk of turning cancerous, only for doctors to reverse this, and just like that, he was back on the road, soon enough finishing the tour with ACDC. Little did they know that this would sadly signal Malcolm Young's final tour. The tour was sadly full of health concerns, with Malcolm Young at the end of the tour being diagnosed with lung cancer. But as they picked it up in its early stages, the tumour was successfully removed via surgery. On top of this, Malcolm had also been suffering from a heart condition and had to have a pacemaker implanted. During the tour, ACDC had their very own radio channel launched with Sirius and XM Radio playing non-stop ACDC tunes along with interviews and extras based on the band, launching in December 2008. By November 4th 2009, Business Review Weekly had ACDC at the top of the Australian earners list for entertainers, with earnings of $105 million displacing the popular children's group The Wiggles as the frontrunners. Following this, an incredible compilation album titled Backtracks was released during November 2009. Featuring unheard studio recordings, rarities and live recordings of tracks from the Bon Scott and Brian Johnson eras, all on two CDs and one DVD. Then in April 2010, ACDC released an album's worth of material for the Iron Man 2 soundtrack, comprised once again of hits from both the Bon Scott and Brian Johnson eras. The track Shoot to Thrill featured in a fan favourite scene in the movie, leading to a surge in the track's popularity at the time. The Iron Man 2 soundtrack rose to number 1 in 12 countries, including the UK, and made the top 5 in a further 10 countries, including Australia and the US. On December 1, 2010, Phil Rudd would earn a reputation as the bad boy of ACDC after he was convicted over being in possession of 25 grams of marijuana on his boat in the North Island city of Tauranga, New Zealand, which is where he had been residing at this point in time. But due to the perks of being a famous rock and roller, and Rudd's lawyer pleading to the judge that Rudd had put loads of money into the local area of Tauranga. Luckily for him, he was let off, as it was his first incident with the law, and would have clashed with his touring schedule with ACDC. He was ordered to pay for his court fees, as well as a measly 250 New Zealand dollars. The judge warned him, however, of his stupidity surrounding the possession of the drug, and Rudd left the courtroom stating, I'm not a bad person. Then later in November 2012, Live at River Plate was released as an album featuring their 2009 Black Ice concert in Buno Aires, Argentina in front of a huge crowd. Brian Johnson also featured as a guest vocalist on Sting's album The Last Ship in 2013 and Brian also wrote songs for a couple of upcoming musicians as well as the band Jackal. That same year in 2013, ACDC were inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and around Christmas time in 2013, a campaign by British ACDC fans aimed to get the track Highway to Hell on the UK singles chart for Christmas time, which ended up peaking at number 4 and believe it or not, it became ACDC's first top 10 hit in over 40 years and were the most successful act never to have had a top 10 hit in the UK up to this point, despite having 30 chart entries over the years. Their previous highest charting track was one of their lesser regarded singles, titled Heatseeker, which made it to number 12 in the UK. Fast forward to early 2014, and rumours had started to circulate that ACDC were on the verge of splitting up, and that 61-year-old Malcolm Young was not doing so well regarding his health. This was somewhat confirmed in April 2014, when it was announced that Malcolm would be taking a break from the band over his ill health, leaving his brother Angus as the only remaining original member of ACDC. It wasn't confirmed at this time what Malcolm was actually suffering from, but was revealed by his son Ross Young and others close to him that he was very ill and that he may never record or perform live again. Brian Johnson addressed the rumours of the band splitting up by stating, We are definitely getting together in May in Vancouver. We're going to pick up guitars, have a plonk, and see if anybody has got any tunes or ideas. If anything happens, we'll record it. Rumours of course started circulating, with concerned fans weighing in on the matter, as slowly more information was leaked out, such as Malcolm returning to Australia and receiving in-home care, that he was beginning to suffer memory loss, confusion and problems with communication running along the lines of Alzheimer's disease or dementia and rumours that the family were potentially looking at putting Malcolm into a home. The sad fact was, Malcolm was regarded by Angus, Brian and even Bon Scott in the past as the glue that held the ACDC band together and that he was a very organised individual. So without him there, the future looked bleak. In May 2014, Brian Johnson starred in a TV series called Cars That Rock, where Brian gets to share his love and passion for motor vehicles such as the Mini and his two cars of his own, known as a Royale RP4 and a Pillbeam MP84, both of which he had entered into vintage races with across the US since the early 2000s. Brian had been heavily involved in the motorsport industry while ACDC weren't in the studio or touring as he starred in the 2006 program The Race where he and a number of other male celebrity drivers took on a group of female celebrity drivers. He later appeared in a number of different Top Gear series posting the equal second best time in the Chevrolet Lachetti in the 2009 series, coming 0.1 seconds behind the lead singer-songwriter, JK. Brian also took part in the Rolex 24 Daytona prototype race in late January 2012, finishing in 12th place. This only amplified his passion further as he took part in the 2013 Celebrity Silverstone Classic Race. On the 3rd of May to the 12th of July, 2014, ACDC travelled to Vancouver, Canada to record their 16th studio album, returning once again to the Warehouse studio for their third album recorded there, with Brendan O'Brien as a producer and Mike Fraser as the mixer and sound engineer. Sadly, however, it wasn't with Malcolm Young who would miss the recording of an ACDC album for the very first time, As once again, Malcolm and Angus's nephew Stevie Young returned to fill the void on rhythm guitar, left vacant by his uncle, just like he had done when Malcolm struggled with alcohol addiction back in the late 80s. Brian stated that the album was extremely difficult to put together without having Malcolm there, and in his honour, he originally thought the album should be called Man Down, But after further thought on the main title, they went with Rock or Bust as it represented the band's need to carry on and that Man Down seemed a bit too ominous and negative in relation to Malcolm's health. With of course Rock or Bust meaning they can continue to rock on or go bust and not carry on. It was during the recording process that Phil Rudd started to test the band's patience after showing up to the recording sessions 10 days late. Due to Rudd's absence during these 10 days, producer Brendan O'Brien was set to replace him the very next day with a different drummer, but finally Rudd appeared and completed his recordings. Angus was quoted as saying, It took about 4 weeks, we had all the material, we were all prepared to do the album, and that helped a lot. We'd done a lot of work before going in the studio. Brendan is a very accomplished musician, so that's part of why we work with him. He knows all his instruments. Angus had actually put together a lot of the songs from earlier projects that he and Malcolm had written or roughly recorded from previous album sessions. Therefore, it still had a certain aspect of Malcolm Young's influence on the album. On the lead up to the album's release, ACDC was again left fuming at Phil Rudd when he failed to show up for the filming of two music videos for their lead singles. Instead they were forced to hire Welshman and former Asia drummer Bob Richards to fill the void. Rudd had been getting in quite a bit of strife recently after being ordered to pay $70,000 to three former employees for unfair dismissal after opening a steak and seafood restaurant named Phil's Place in Tauranga, New Zealand. A couple months later, ACDC's bad boy Phil Rudd even put out his very own solo album titled Head Job which raised some questions if he was really committed to the ACDC band at the time. During July 2014, it was then confirmed by Brian Johnson that Malcolm Young was in hospital receiving treatment for an illness which was yet to be revealed to the public. Johnson had actually spoke out in 2012, hinting that one of the band members was unwell by stating, ''One of the boys is a little sick and I can't say anything.'' But he's getting better, he's doing wonderful, full recovery fully expected, which sadly didn't turn out to be the case as Malcolm's condition only worsened over time. On the 24th of September 2014, sadly it was confirmed that Malcolm Young would retire from the music industry and Therefore, his nephew, Stevie Young, became an official member of the band after last filling in for Malcolm around 26 years ago on the 1988 Blow Up Your Video tour. It was revealed that Angus had organised this back in January of 2014 as Malcolm's condition worsened. Two days after it was confirmed that Malcolm would not be returning to ACDC and that he was ill, The Sydney Morning Herald got in before the band could and announced to the public that Malcolm had dementia and that he was receiving full-time care in a nursing home in Elizabeth Bay in Sydney, Australia, with one of the sources close to Malcolm claiming that he had, quote, complete loss of short-term memory. Around four days later, due to the rumours, the young family then felt compelled to confirm that yes, Malcolm did in fact have dementia, as they were quoted as saying, Malcolm is suffering from dementia and the family thanks you for respecting their privacy. After this statement, Angus Young started allowing more interviews on the topic and claimed that Malcolm had been battling dementia for over three years and that he had been showing signs as early as the recording process for Black Ice in 2008 as he showed signs of dementia with lapses of memory and concentration with Angus quoted as saying Malcolm was still capable of knowing what he wanted to do. I said to him, do you want to go through with what we were doing? And he said, shit yeah. Then once the Black Ice tour had wrapped up in 2010, it had gotten notably worse after receiving treatment throughout the tour, as he had been forgetting the chords to songs every night and would have to rehearse them repeatedly just to make sure he got them right. In an interview with Guitar Player magazine, Angus was quoted as saying, He still likes his music. We make sure he has his Chuck Berry and a little Buddy Holly. Mal kept doing what he could until he couldn't do it anymore. But I have all the material he was working on. There were a lot of riffs, ideas and a bit of choruses. I'd fill things in to see if we had a song. Every album we've ever done has been that way. There was always a bit from the past, a bit from what we had that was brand new and sometimes just an old idea that either Malcolm or myself had worked on, but never finished. The songwriting process didn't really change, except for the fact that Malcolm physically wasn't there. So when it came to writing and putting stuff together, I had Stevie Young there with me. You see, Malcolm was always a great organiser. He always kept track of the stuff we were writing together. He'd record it, date it, and make notes. My records, if you can call them that, are always chaotic. So this time, Stevie helped me organise a lot of what was there. Angus added that it was Malcolm's wish to see Angus and ACDC continue on and continue to build on that same classic sound they had become renowned for over the decades. On the 7th of October 2014, ACDC released their first single, titled Play Ball, from their upcoming album Rock or Bust, which managed to receive some airplay on radio across the world, especially in Canada, the US, and Australia, as well as charting on their alternative and rock charts, but it failed to take off on the mainstream charts. While the song became one of their least successful singles, it did however become the theme song for many sporting teams around the world, Just like the song Hells Bells, which became a sporting theme for Australian NRL team, the Penrith Panthers, who continue to use the song as they run out onto the field to this very day. Before ACDC could even release their next single, on the 6th of November 2014, Phil Rudd was in the news once again for all the wrong reasons. This time around, Phil had crossed the line as he was charged for attempting to procure a murder for hire to kill two men, including one of his former assistants, which would see him face up to 10 years in jail if he was convicted. He was also charged with threatening to kill, possession of marijuana once again, and possession of methamphetamines. All charges remained except the one for procuring a murder, which was dropped the following day due to a lack of evidence. However, Rudd was still facing up to 7 years jail time for the charge of threatening to kill. Rudd was given bail to return to his home until the next court appearance towards the end of the month and was practically unable to leave his home. ACDC released a statement saying, quote, We've only become aware of Phil's arrest as the news was breaking. We have no further comment. While they claimed that they would still be continuing the Rock or Bus tour, despite rumours that they might need to cancel, but no word on Phil's involvement in this tour was included. Following this, on the 13th of November 2014, Angus Young decided to speak out over the situation and revealed that with or without Phil, they would be touring and that they had been having problems with him for a while. As he said in an interview, quote, He's got to sort himself out, I think. At this point it's kind of a question mark, but if we're touring, there will be a drummer in place, put it that way. Phil created his own situation, it's a hard thing to say about the guy, he's a great drummer and he's done a lot of stuff for us. But he seems to have let himself go, he's not the Phil we've known from the past. As uncertainty clouded ACDC over what to do with Phil... On the 17th of November 2014, they released their second single titled Rock or Bust from the album of the same name. Again, like Play Ball, it received radio airplay around the world but struggled to make much of an impact on the charts. On the 28th of November 2014, ACDC dc next released their 16th studio album titled Rock or Bust which fared better overall than the album's singles, reaching number one in 12 different countries, including Australia and Canada, and the top five in a further 10 countries, including the US, New Zealand and UK, selling around 2.8 million copies around the world. In December 2014, it was rumoured by former WWE wrestler and Fozzy lead singer Chris Jericho on his podcast The Talk Is Jericho that Chris Slade was in line to replace Phil Rudd on the upcoming Rock or Bust World Tour, with many fans hoping this was in fact the case. Slade had been performing with an ACDC tribute band and the English rock band Asia, and on the 7th of February 2015, just two months out from the start of the tour, Chris Slade was spotted with the band at a charity album signing day. A photo of Chris signing albums and autographs then went viral, as speculation grew. This led Slade and ACDC to make a statement publicly, and announce the rumours were true, and Slade would return on drums in place of Phil Rudd, making his first live performance with the band at the Grammys the following day. With all the ACDC members now well into their 60s, and Angus just about to turn 60 himself, ACDC appeared for a performance at the 57th Annual Grammy Awards in LA on the 8th of February 2015, in front of many stars from the industry. Despite their age, ACDC played up a storm, inspiring the many young artists in the crowd, from Katy Perry to Ed Sheeran, as they played Rock or Bust and Highway to Hell, proving you're never too old to rock and roll, and that ACDC definitely still have it. This performance led into their Rock or Bust World Tour which began on the 10th of April 2015 at the popular Coachella Valley Music Festival where they headlined in front of 90,000 attendees. Following this, they performed a total of 88 shows across Europe, the UK, the US, Canada and Australia and New Zealand grossing around $221 million at the box office. The tour officially wrapped up in Philadelphia in the US on the 20th of September 2016, almost a year and a half later. During the tour, around May 2015, Phil Rugg claimed he hoped to return eventually if they would have him back and was quoted as saying, I'm sure they're having a great old time. I've seen the error of my ways. It's onward and upward from here. Then on the 9th of July 2015, on the very same day that ACDC were performing without Phil in Italy, Phil Rudd was sentenced to 8 months home detention in New Zealand and ordered to pay $120,000 to those he had threatened. Phil appealed to be discharged without conviction, but this was rejected along with another appeal to move the matter to the High Court. Since then, Rudd revealed he had been receiving counselling and would no longer be involved in quote, crazy shit, as he hoped to change for the better. He would go on to tour his own solo album, Head Job around Europe in 2017. During the Rock or Bus tour, there were many challenges that faced the band, including the health of Brian Johnson who around February 2016 was forced to postpone 22 ACDC shows for later dates due to being told by doctors that if he continued to perform, that he could risk losing his hearing completely due to a ruptured eardrum suffered when racing cars after forgetting to wear the necessary earplugs. Johnson up to this point had been suffering hearing loss for a while, as he said, quote, It was pretty serious. I couldn't hear the tone of the guitars at all. It was a horrible kind of deafness. Throughout many of the shows so far, on the tour, Brian had relied solely on muscle memory and mouth shapes to make sure he was singing in the right tone, and in time with the band, as he was quoted as saying, I was starting to really feel bad about the performances in front of the boys, in front of the audience. It was crippling. There's nothing worse than standing there and not being sure. Bass guitarist Cliff Williams claimed it was very hard to watch him go through it, and he was quoted as saying he'd pull his in-ears out and just shake his head. He couldn't pitch. He was having a real hard time. With many shows still set to take place, ACDC didn't want to let their fans down, so Johnson graciously stepped aside and allowed a replacement vocalist to be called in to finish the tour. It was a surprise to many in March 2016 that ACDC announced that controversial Guns N' Roses frontman Axl Rose would be filling in for Johnson. It was the first time in 36 years since Johnson joined the band that he would not be singing for them. Brian took it hard to be sitting on the sidelines as his best buddies jetted around performing with Axl Rose but he knew it was up to him to get better for the band and their fans and hope for a return. This led Brian to seek out experimental treatment to restore his hearing over the next few years. He was reluctant in interviews to share the full extent on how he treated his hearing. But when talking about the man that treated him, he was quoted as saying, He brought this thing that looked like a car battery. I went, what in the hell is that? He said, we're going to miniaturize it. It took two and a half years. He came down once a month. We'd sit there and it was boring as shit with all these wires and computer screens and noises, but it was well worth it. The only thing I can tell you is that it uses bone structure in the skull as a receiver. That's as much as I can tell you. Brian would keep his bear mates up to date with how he was going over time and continued his treatment. In the meantime, Axel Rose made his ACDC live debut in Lisbon, Portugal, in front of 60,000 people. As he appeared in a moon boot and wheelchair due to a recent accident where he broke his leg during a Guns N' Roses show in LA at the Troubadour when he slipped off stage back in April. Despite being unable to get around on stage with high energy as he usually does, Axel still provided a great show and superb vocals as he was praised for singing ACDC's songs like Axel Rose would and that he wasn't trying to imitate Brian Johnson's style. Angus was grateful for Axel's service to ACDC and even appeared alongside Axel Rose and Slash with Guns N' Roses at many of their live shows as a guest performer. Fans were ecstatic to see the two guitar legends, such as Angus and Slash, collaborate as they performed epic solo battles and combined during both ACDC and Gunners tracks. After this tour, rumours started to circulate that Axel may become the new official singer of the band if Brian wasn't to recover, with many having mixed feelings about this, despite Axel putting on great live performances and ensuring that the show continued on. On the final night of the tour in Philadelphia, ACDC played for those about to rock We Salute You in honour of Cliff Williams, who was brought to the front of the stage as the closing song to bow to the audience, as he revealed a few weeks beforehand that he would retire from ACDC and the music industry in general due to health reasons related to terrible bouts of vertigo affecting his balance on stage as well as personally feeling like the band had shifted a bit too much, as he was quoted as saying, It's been what I've known for the past 40 years, but after this tour, I'm backing off of touring and recording. Losing Malcolm, the thing with Phil, and now with Brian, it's a changed animal. I feel in my gut, it's the right thing. ACDC would spend the next few years taking a break as Johnson attempted to gain his hearing back while the others took a well earned rest. With the band looking all worse for wear and falling apart at the seams, despite struggling with his hearing loss, Brian Johnson started his own series that was called A Life on the Road where he visits a variety of star musicians and interviews them on how they are doing today and to take a trip down memory lane over their careers. In the Season 2 series, Brian interviewed Mick Fleetwood of Fleetwood Mac, Robert Plan of Led Zeppelin, Roger Daltrey of The Who, Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters, Joe Elliott of Def Leppard, Lars Ulrich of Metallica, Dolly Parton, Sting, and many more. It was a great hobby for Brian, which distracted him from his hearing loss issues. Sad news would rock ACDC though, when it was discovered that Malcolm and Angus's brother George Young had sadly passed away at the age of 70, on the 22nd of October, 2017. George Young, who of course played a pivotal role in ACDC's production team over the decades, was believed to have had a bad fall, leading to his death. George was well known for his time as the lead singer of the Easy Beats, and together with Harry Vander, they formed quite the production duo, leading them to produce hits like Lovers in the Air for John Paul Young and for their own project called Flash and the Pan. George had previously retired from the industry in the 1990s, focusing on life with his family in Portugal and spent his last remaining years living in Singapore. George's death was a huge loss for the young family, no doubt taking its toll on Angus and Malcolm. And when he passed, an outpouring of tributes were made by the likes of Jimmy Barnes, as he said, quote, What a huge loss for music, a great songwriter, producer, and a great human being. While ACDC released a statement that read, Without his help and guidance, there would not have been an ACDC. As a musician, songwriter, producer, advisor, and much, much more. You could not ask for a more dedicated and professional man. Perhaps the most heartbreaking news of all, however, would rock the band just a month later, when it was confirmed on the 18th of November, 2017, that co-founding member Malcolm Young had very sadly lost his battle with dementia and passed away at the age of 64 at his nursing home called Lulworth House in Elizabeth Bay, Sydney, Australia. ACDC first put out a statement referring to Malcolm as the driving force within the band and were also quoted as saying, As a guitarist, songwriter and visionary, he was a perfectionist and a unique man. He always stuck to his guns and didn't said exactly what he wanted. He took great pride in all that he endeavoured. His loyalty to the fans was unsurpassed. Following the news hitting the world of Malcolm's death, Tributes from musicians, public figures and fans poured in for the co-founder of ACDC with Slash of Guns N' Roses stating Monumentally sad day in rock and roll. Guns N' Roses who were touring at the time dedicated their song Knocking on Heaven's Door to him and Eddie Van Halen wrote it's a sad day in rock and roll. Malcolm Young was my friend and the heart and soul of ACDC. Other tributes came from Ozzy Osbourne, Billy Idol Dave Mustaine of Megadeth, Joe Walsh, Joe Satriani, The Foo Fighters and Motley Crue, among many others, while Brian Johnson put out a beautiful tribute to his friend by saying, quote, ''For 32 years, we stood side by side on stage. I am saddened by the passing of my friend Malcolm Young. I can't believe he's gone. We had such great times on the road. I was always aware that he was a genius on guitar.'' His riffs have become legend, as has he. I send out my love and sympathy to his wife Linda, his children Kara and Ross, and Angus, who will all be devastated, as we all are. He has left a legacy that I don't think many can match. He never liked the celebrity side of fame. He was too humble for that. He was the man who created ACDC, because he said there was no rock and roll out there. I am proud to have known him, and call him a friend, and I'm going to miss him so much. I salute you, Malcolm Young. Malcolm's funeral was held at the St Mary's Cathedral in Sydney, Australia, as loved ones including Malcolm's wife and children were in attendance alongside Angus, nephew Stevie Young, Cliff Williams, Phil Rudd, Chris Slade, Brian Johnson and other well-known Australian musicians such as Jimmy Barnes, Angry Anderson and other former bandmates. In his honour, a Scottish marching band made their way down the street outside the church, playing the Australian National Anthem, An Amazing Grace, as fans were able to watch on and pay their respects in the streets. With one gentleman adding the comment, my thoughts are very much with his family and with Angus, the last man standing. Angus Young and Brian Johnson later spoke to 60 Minutes Australia about losing Malcolm, With Angus going into detail about the most difficult times relating to Malcolm's dementia. As he was quoted as saying, I think the hardest part was not so much in passing, because that was a kind of end. The relief. I think the worst part is the decline. That's the hard part. Because of how you knew him, and then to see that it was gone. I would say even to the end, if I was there, he had from here to here, he had a big smile, and I think that was probably, for me, that gave me a kind of joy, even though he was in that state, that was always the joy of it. He still got a great kick, if I played him guitar, he would try to tap his foot, but he always knew I was there, so that was the big thing, and I was with him towards the end. Brian then added, quote, It was very emotional when he went, it was all too soon too quick and too soon. Original ACDC lead singer Dave Evans, who fronted the band back in the early 70s before Bon Scott replaced him, also stated about Malcolm Young, quote, I remember Malcolm when I first met him. He was such a driving force, just a tiny little guy, just a little touch over five foot tall. But boy, he had a big heart and a big personality and he was tough too. Malcolm was very tough and no matter what, He was ACDC through and through, and of course, once he passed away, which is very sad, ACDC of course will never ever be the same without Malcolm. How can it be? After the deaths of both George Young and Pivotal member Malcolm Young in just the space of a few months, the members of ACDC remained on the down low for quite some time, as fans wondered if this would be it for the band. Then in August of 2018, an individual snapped a photo of Angus Young and his nephew Stevie Young lighting up a cigarette on a balcony outside of the Warehouse studio in Vancouver, Canada, suggesting that ACDC were back in the studio producing their 17th studio album. Further sightings and photos then hinted that Brian Johnson, Cliff Williams and Phil Rudd were also there in the studio, signalling their potential return to the band, and sending the rumor mill into overdrive. Sound engineer Mike Fraser then confirmed that yes, ACDC was definitely back in the studio, and that Brian Johnson, Cliff Williams, and Phil Rudd had returned, as fans eagerly awaited further announcements, and rumors that Axl Rose would be the new lead singer were finally put to bed. Soon enough, it was confirmed that ACDC were returning with a brand new album titled Power Up, which would be released in 2020. The band would now consist of Angus Young on lead guitar, Stevie Young on rhythm guitar and returns for Brian Johnson on vocals after recovering from his hearing troubles Cliff Williams returned on bass after coming out of retirement and Phil Rudd returned on drums despite his previous troubles, therefore replacing Chris Slade. Brian Johnson especially had made a miraculous recovery through the experimental treatment he received and also had a prosthetic eardrum made that allowed him to hear again. Cliff Williams on the other hand, who is now the second longest serving member of ACDC that was still alive, behind Angus Young, was quoted as saying, It was like the old band back together. It was not like starting over again, but as close to the band that's been together for 40 plus years as we can possibly make it. I didn't want to miss it. ACDC would record power-up over six weeks from August to September 2018, with producer Brendan O'Brien returning once again. The tracks were altered significantly, with most of them coming from the ACDC vault of unfinished tracks that Angus and Malcolm had worked on and featured previously recorded riffs from Malcolm Young as they dedicated this album to him. With Angus saying, This record is pretty much a dedication to Malcolm. My brother. It's a tribute for him, like Back in Black was a tribute to Bon Scott. When recording the album, Brian Johnson revealed that it was a great electric feeling in the studio and that it was great to see all the familiar faces come together again. As he said in an interview, quote, When the boys plugged in, or powered up, if you'll excuse the pun, and they started playing, that was it. Angus was quoted as saying, I think he would have been proud of the job we've done for him, even the title we gave it, Power Up, pretty much sums him up too. When he put on that guitar, he was one big guitar. To put it this way, when he played guitar, it sounded like there were two people playing. In order to pay tribute to Malcolm's contribution to the tracks, he was credited to all 12 songs that would be included on the album. When coming up with the album name, Angus stated, quote, I went through everything. Like titles in songs, in the song Realize, there's the line, I've got the power to mesmerize. The word power, it goes back to the name ACDC. We always looked at ourselves as that of power, electric power. So I just wanted another, if you could say, okay, what could you call ACDC, and you say, they're power. And I just thought something positive, power up. When we get on a stage, we plug in the guitars, and everything powers up. ...when we're out there, and Power Up seemed pretty positive. As ACDC prepared to release their next album, Angus was rocked by some more bad news... ...with his beloved sister Margaret Young passing away at the age of 84. Margaret, of course, was responsible for helping the boys come up with the band name... ...the schoolboy outfit for Angus, and always encourage their musical dreams... ...even helping to influence Malcolm and Angus's musical tastes back in their childhood... Borrowing from the words of Bon Scott, stating, You're never too old to rock and roll, on the 7th of October, 2020. ACDC, with most of their members heading into their late 60s, and Brian being in his early 70s, released the lead single from Power Up, titled Shot in the Dark, which once again, displayed that typical ACDC sound that we all know and love. Stevie Young did a brilliant job filling his uncle Malcolm's shoes as a great guitarist in his own right. As Shot in the Dark rose to number 5 in New Zealand, was featured on a range of US, Australian and Canadian alternate and rock charts, and received plenty of radio airplay in these countries. Following this, they put out a solid track titled Realize, but it didn't receive as much airtime. Then on the 13th of November 2020, ACDC released their 17th studio album, titled Power Up, which saw it rise to number 1 in 22 countries, including Australia, New Zealand, the US and the UK, and a further 4 countries, reaching the top 5. To this day, it has sold close to 2 million copies and was the 6th best selling album of 2020 worldwide, selling 1.3 million copies. With the pandemic kicking off, however, there was no way they could tour their new album. So instead, they continued to release the singles Demon Fire and Witch's Spell. And most recently in June of 2021, ACDC released one of the album's best tracks titled Through the Mists of Time, which features a stunning music video where images and footage of all their past members appear as the boys rock out to the song. The song sees songwriter Angus Young looking back on the band's history and was believed to have given Brian Johnson shivers when he first heard it, as he instantly thought of Malcolm, and was quoted as saying that it's an ode to happy times of rock and roll when we were young and daft. Whenever I hear it, I still get goosebumps. I still think of him. I was thinking of him when I sung it. It's just about the happy days when we first started in the 80s, when I first joined the band. I just remember these very happy carefree days and angus did a magnificent job of putting those lyrics together i think he really felt it too because him and malcolm were inseparable today the acdc members all of course continue to play music but with the current global pandemic situation touring has been put on hold which in some ways is a blessing in disguise as they are able to spend more time with their families The final remaining original member and co-founder, Angus Young, is today heralded as one of the greatest rock and roll guitarists and entertainers of all time and is now 66 years of age. Troubled drummer Phil Rudd has kept his word and managed to stay out of trouble for the time being and is now 67 years old. Brian Johnson is now 74, Cliff Williams is 72 and Angus's nephew Stevie Young is now 64 years old. Former ACDC bass guitarist from the Bon Scott era, Mark Evans, is now 65 and is performing today with Australian band Rose Tattoo. He is married and has his own autobiography out called Dirty Deeds, My Life Inside Outside of ACDC. Former ACDC drummer from the 80s, Simon Wright, is now 58, and continues to play music today in a range of projects, while former drummer Chris Slade is now 75 years old. Other than short-term bass guitarist Paul Matters, who died in 2020, older short-term members such as Dave Evans, Colin Burgess, Peter Clark, Rob Bailey, and Larry Van Crete are all currently still alive to this day, with most of them still performing in some capacity, with Dave Evans recently recording some music with former Metallica producer Fleming Rasmussen. Along the way, the boys have lost legendary producer George Young, who today would have been 74, and the irreplaceable Malcolm Young, who would have been 68 if he had have lived on today. In ACDC terms, George will forever be remembered as the pioneer that helped steer his brothers in the right direction, producing especially great albums during the Bon Scott era that led to them conquering Australia and the UK and setting them up in the US. While Malcolm, of course, was the glue that held the band together for so long, shredding on his Gretchen Gibson guitars and continuing on for as long as he could, writing and arranging the hits we know and love today, he really was the driving force of the band and one of a kind. One man that has been gone for a long time now that we won't forget any time soon, which of course is Bon Scott, who would have today been around 75 years old, had he lived on. But as hard, fast and wild Bon lived, he of course was always destined to never grow old, as he is still today, held by many ACDC fans, as the true heart and soul of ACDC, and in many fans' eyes, the best frontman that they ever did have with Bon out the front with his charisma and wild charm Angus rocking the duck walk in his schoolboy outfit and Malcolm and the rest of the boys they were unstoppable in the 70s and no doubt were destined to break into the US at some stage had Bon lived on but despite the tragic death of Bon Scott and the near breakup of the band they managed to find a frontman in Brian Johnson who would take them in a similar direction, all while maintaining Bond's legacy and performing in his own unique style. Despite the significant change that would have signalled the end of most bands, ACDC soldiered on into the 80s to release their most successful album, In Back in Black, becoming one of the best-selling albums of all time and to this day, despite the band members being in their late 60s and early 70s, they are still rocking on. It's estimated that ACDC have now sold up to 200 million albums worldwide, making them one of the most successful bands of all time. Quite a feat for a bunch of old rockers. What Brian, Angus and the boys do next is anyone's guess, but I guarantee you, for as long as Angus is still out there rocking out on stage, ACDC will live on until the day he dies. He is now the last man standing essentially and the heart and soul of the band holding the key to that classic sound we all know so well. When his time does come and ACDC decide to retire for good there is no doubt in my mind that their music will live on for many more generations to come. As they have influenced so many up and coming rock and roll bands over the years and most rock guitarists will tell you that the first song they ever learnt to play was by ACDC. So from this day on, and well into the future, I'm sure they will still be singing, for those about to rock, we salute you. Thank you for tuning into that episode, don't forget to check out our other episodes from season 1 and 2 ranging from Kurt Cobain and Freddie Mercury to Prince, Chasey Chapman and Stevie Nicks and -and up-and-comers like Youngblood, Tones and I and The Kid Leroy. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and even YouTube and Spotify, where you can find a range of playlists, featuring the music of every artist covered in the lyrics of their life podcast so far. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, or you can now rate the podcast on Spotify. Don't forget to let your friends and family know about what they've been missing out on and feel free to click the free subscribe or follow button to the podcast wherever you listen so you can receive a notification every time a new episode becomes available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then please feel free to head to Patreon or buymeacoffee.com where you can contribute your support for the podcast in exchange for some bonus content ranging from as little as $1 donations to really anything you like. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue to bring you more great episodes in the future. This podcast is created and researched completely independently, so your contribution would really help this podcast continue on. Once again, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.